The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. A bit later, we'll hear about the latest edition of the Chicago Architecture Biennial, which addresses, among other things, the erasure of the history of indigenous settlements in Chicago and its region. But first this week, museum ethics. While we were off air in the summer, there were numerous developments in the ongoing and indeed intensifying debate around museum sponsorship and governance in the UK, Europe and the US. Martin Bailey, a London correspondent for the art newspaper, and our former editor and now editor-at-large, Jane Morris, join me to discuss the latest stories and what, if anything, museums are doing to address the issues. Jane and Martin, um, several things have happened over the summer. There was, there was a sort of a glut of events which happened over the summer which all speak to this whole subject of ethics in museums. Shall we take a look at them uh, one by one? Let's start with um, the resignation from the board of trustees for the British Museum of Ardaf Suyef, the writer. Martin, what happened there? Well, she it was a bit of a surprise, but uh, she resigned quite quickly and uh, just put out an announcement. It was quite a long statement she made, and she made various points about the museum, um, uh, including the fact that they weren't really doing enough to enlarge their audiences. But the one specific thing that she said which really gained attention was that she was concerned about the BP sponsorship. Um, so that really has sort of put further pressure on the trustees at the British Museum to consider what to do about BP. And uh, BP is con- continuing to support exhibitions very generously at the British Museum. But um, every time a show opens, they're accompanied by protests and those protests are not going to go away. So it's a long-term issue for the British Museum. And it's a long-term issue too for the National Portrait Gallery, isn't it, Jane? Because in June, for instance, we heard that Gary Hume, who was on uh, the panel of the BP Portrait Award, which is a very long-standing award that's been sponsored by P- BP, uh, was uh, very forthright in a letter that he wrote to Nicholas Cullinan, the director. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is it's particularly difficult, I think, for for art museums, particularly contemporary art museums or ones with large contemporary programmes, when uh, artists uh, join or, in fact, lead the protests. I think that's probably the hardest thing for the museums to deal with. I think it's easier for the British Museum to say, no, we're carrying on uh, with BP. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, because... um it's been a year in which Extinction Rebellion have made a, an enormous impact on the streets of London. There's been a very palpable level of increase in protests against the climate crisis. And artists seem to have upped their game in terms of their rhetoric around it. I mean, um, Gary Hume was very, very forthright in, in what he was saying. He made very strong points about about uh, an association with BP affecting the reputation of the National Portrait Gallery. How are the galleries responding to this, Jane? How are they how are they able to deal with this? Well, I feel that Martin, who's actually written the most recent story on this, may may know may be ahead of me on this one. But um, my my impression generally, and indeed talking to the directors, I think they're finding this incredibly difficult. And I think part of the problem is it's not just BP. And I think you know we could have a wider discussion about BP. Um, I think we're all very aware of the climate crisis. Not not everybody actually is totally in step with this, but let's say a lot of people believe that the climate crisis is being 
caused by human activity uh, and that fuel companies are part of the problem. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting because I've always sort of wrestled with this problem that we probably all used fuel to get here today, whether we came on public transport or in taxis or in cars or whatever. We all like our homes being heated. We're all actually using BP's products. So one of the questions really is, should museums be held to a higher standard of ethics than the population is willing to do at large? Question number one. And I think that's one of the challenges that museums are facing. Um, You know, it used to be acceptable that... uh, Museums took arms sponsorship. I think the Tate did well into the 1980s. I think, think in fact, I remember there was a Stubbs show, wasn't it, that was sponsored by an arms manufacturer until Nicholas Sirota came in and he decided to draw a red line at the time around um, arms or defence contractors, defence companies. Um, So, as I say, I think museums are struggling between the fact that they need to earn money. Um, They've had years and years and years of now very deep cutbacks. And again, we might want to talk about that a bit more. Uh, And they're trying to make ethical judgments where I think they aren't really sure where society at large stands. Um, Of course, we're very aware of the Extinction Rebellion um, protests. But, you know, actually probably more people turned out um, on the Countryside Alliance March, which I think 400,000 people turned up for one march. Um, You know, so it's very hard for people to judge, I think, on the basis of particular protests, particular pressure groups. Um, Martin, you have just done a sort of big survey of the UK Museum's responses to these ethics dilemmas. What are they telling you? Well, I think one of the interesting questions which Jane just raised is whether museums should lead on these issues or whether it should follow slightly behind, if you like, just follow society. And um, talking to the museum directors, um, their general position is that they want to reflect what society and what the government is saying. Uh, So they're not leading. But we had a very interesting think piece by Nick Sirota, um, formerly director of Tate and now chairman of the Arts Council, who was making the um, rather bold point that museums should actually lead and be slightly further ahead of public opinion. And I think that follows with the fact, as I say, mentioning the arms sponsorship, uh, the defence industry arms sponsorship issue, uh, because that was an example when that is the position he took. He decided to be kind of in in advance of the rest of, uh, let's say, not necessarily society at large, but they decided to be a bit more in advance. But, you know, typically when there was issues around tobacco sponsorship, the museums, I think, took their traditional position, which is they waited until the government decided to outlaw certain kinds of sponsorship and then they fell into line. But several museums campaigned quite hard back in the 90s. I think it was 1997. Several museums campaigned quite hard to retain tobacco sponsorship. Yes, and indeed, the British Museum is still getting tobacco sponsorship um, from a company called JTI, which is um, actually Japan Tobacco International. Um, And this has received relatively little um, publicity, although we've covered it in the art newspaper. And tobacco in the UK actually kills roughly 100 times more people every year than opiates. Um, And the, the Sackler company was one of the companies manufacturing those drugs. So it's interesting that um, public opinion now 
has almost sort of gone off the tobacco issue and it's gone on uh, to other issues. And I'd quite like to mention the Venice Biennale also takes sponsorship from JTI. And it was very interesting to me that not an eyebrow was raised at the press conference or by any artists or anyone taking part. And I think the money is actually used at the Venice Biennale to sponsor an education programme. I'm wondering if part of the reason that particularly BP sponsorship and fossil fuel sponsorship is is of growing importance is because we are increasingly being made aware of the uh, urgency of the climate emergency in the sense that we have this well it's, it is now nearly 11 years it's it was 12 years last december from the the ipcc report it will be 11 years this december um i think we i think the urgency of needing to react to the climate uh, emergency is something which uh, certainly audiences we feel we know that artists writers etc are are responding but one of the things I was perceiving as I was as I was seeing this sort of um, the emergence of all these stories was that it seemed to me that some of the um, museums responses seemed to be a bit on their heels a bit defensive and I, I particularly take the example of Ian Blatchford who's the director of the science museums group and it seems to me that he doesn't seem particularly in step with the with this sort of swell of feeling about about climate science. I think it's interesting you're saying about people being on the back foot. Um, I think it's interesting because in one sense you could argue that Ian Blatchford and also Tristram Hunt and I think Charles, Charles Samora Smith have um, come out with very clear positions and they've taken the position that it's it's a sort of you know that the ends justify the means argument and that it's better for this money to be put to good use uh, and I think some of them also have argued that BP will be part of the solution and it's better not to demonize a company that almost certainly will be part of the the well will have to in some ways change um and but as I say I think that's the real challenge for museums those that have decided to accept the sponsorship and stand up for it in a way have got a clearer position you can argue with it but they have a clearer position what seems to be happening with quite a few other museums is that they're kind of in hiding hoping it's somehow going to go away yeah I mean it's it's interesting isn't it to contrast the science museum group and Tate because the Tate did have BP sponsorship it doesn't anymore and the Tate announced this this earlier this summer that it was recognizing the climate emergency it was able to do that obviously without the uh, weight of a, uh, a a fossil fuel sponsor but um what was interesting was that Ian Blatchford from the science museums chose to attack the Tate in an email to staff that leaked and that in that letter he said that Tate's Tate's statement was merely a statement that um, he preferred action over words. But actually, the Tate have actually got an uh, an exhibition of a climate activist right now, Olaf Ulyasson, who has actually made work specifically about this topic. And it was and that announcement that Tate made that it was recognising the climate emergency was actually as a result of a forum a kind of an event that was staged at which lots of uh, people invested in this subject were gathered together and I think actually there was far more action in what the Tate decided to do there than Ian Blatchford perhaps suggested and I'm curious because it seems to me that in in the statements made by Ian Blatchford he seems to be parroting I would say a lot of the arguments that are made by the fossil fuel companies and not actually acting that critically towards them because the, the fossil fuel companies are are talking the talk about 
climate change and saying they're going to invest in green energy, but they are overwhelmingly investing still in fossil fuel and in in the energies that that are deeply problematic for the environment. And given the urgency, I'm wondering if the um, if Ian Blatchford perhaps could have taken a slightly different tone, a more conciliatory tone to those people who are expressing concern, and they are they include his staff members. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's a tricky one, and I'm not I'm not I, I think it's interesting thinking the way round this problem though, because the Tate is actually very silent about other pressure areas. So it's obviously come to a decision, I guess, of some sort round BP, and I'm imagining we won't see more sponsorship from BP or more sponsorship from Shell, let's say at the Tate, but there are other sources of money that are causing uh, trouble. And I think we may come on to this later in the discussion, um, you know, which which the Tate is quite unenthusiastic to discuss. And I say I come back to that point. I'm not particularly trying to defend the Science Museum, but, you know, the government currently takes nearly 30 billion a year for, in revenue from fossil fuel companies. And it is that question that I think Martin raised a bit earlier, which is, do the museums stay in line with current government policy or do they decide to be more at a leading edge? I think it is true that the climate situation is probably different, I feel, than perhaps even tobacco was um, because of the potential, you know, if the climate scientists are correct, um, you know, because of the potential, uh, you know, future uh, catastrophe that's being predicted. We would discussing whether the whether the museum should follow government policy but actually we are in a situation where the where the government is in a state of paralysis i mean the, the do we have a government well it was precisely i mean when was when was the last time that it was able to seriously debate anything relating to the no, environment no 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 sure but i mean to be fair new labor and the cameron conservative government weren't really engaging any more strongly, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean, they were trying to make changes, of course, but nobody was saying we're going to cut off twenty-eight billion pounds of funding. Oh, and by the way, nobody's going to have any cars and heating. It, it's at the end of the day. I think most of us do agree that it will have to be government that really changes. It will be government legislation and intra-government legislation that ultimately changes people's behaviour. Uh, it's difficult for us as individuals to live our lives without, you know, government deciding, you know, it, it, it could make it incredibly difficult to, to continue with fossil fuels, for example. Um, so, yeah, so as I say, I think this is the challenge for museums. I suppose one of the big questions for museums, and again, I think that if I were in the museums, if I was the director of a museum, I would be trying, I think, to look for some consensus within the group. I would also, I think, be talking to DCMS and the Arts Council, and I would be trying to get some research going. I mean, how do the majority of visitors feel? How do the younger visitors feel? Are they feeling so strongly about this that 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 we are re reducing or ruining the reputation of a museum to, say, millennial visitors? And without knowing, there is a danger that museums could be slow and behind the curve and a lot of reputational damage could be being done. But equally, it could be a relatively small number of very uh, loud voices meeting out kind of rough justice, which museums don't really know how to deal with. It's interesting, isn't it, Martin, to compare this with the um, story of the Sacklers uh, and the um, Purdue Pharma, this company that produced OxyContin, and this caused an, an enormous amount of consternation and eventually museums acted. It took the National Portrait Gallery and uh, 
Theresa Sackler coming to an agreement that they would decline a donation to then prompt other museums to act. So does, in a way, does it need... Um, does it need action from one museum in, in order to create an, a domino effect for others to take action? Well, I think it concentrates the mind, um, as certainly did in the National Portrait Gallery case. And um, one point that I think is very important is that museums really are much more concerned about their reputation uh, and possible damage to their reputation rather than necessarily the issues which lie behind uh, it, whether it's fossil fuels or, or medications. Um, and the NPG was in the position where it had accepted about a, uh, roughly a year ago a £1 million donation from the Sacklers. And then it became an issue and uh, it became a public issue and they had to take a position on it. And the trustees uh, set up an ethics committee uh, which looked into it and the trustees considered the matter. And it was realised that accepting that Sackler money at this particular point in time this year was going to cause a reputational damage. It might have led other donors to consider whether they wanted to give money for the um, very important portrait gallery expansion project. So they made a decision. And then, of course, the NPG having made a decision, other museums are being asked what they're going to do. Um, so far, they haven't uh, said very much about it, but the Sacklers are not giving further money. There's the interesting question of whether the Sackler name will continue to be on Almost every major museum building in London, you know, uh, we have Sackler corridors and Sackler this and Sackler, Sackler escalators. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, it's interesting that Teresa Sackler herself is a trustee of the Victorian Albert Museum and her term of office um, expires in November. Now, I suspect uh, that she would decide not to stand for renewal, but it will be interesting to see what happens at the v and very soon. There was in, over the summer. There was this uh, piece of news that emerged that that um, Nan Goldin, the artist who has been a real activist in this area about opioids and the Sacklers, uh, staged a protest outside the Louvre. And at the same time, the Louvre did remove the Sackler name from its galleries. Jane, that was a sort of complicated story, wasn't it? It wasn't as simple as it seemed. Well, I think did, didn't it turn out in the end that in fact the the term of the naming was up, so the the, the, the Louvre sort of got a bit of a get out of jail free there, didn't they? <laughs> it did, indeed. So, but, it, but we we just don't know what we don't martin we don't know the terms that the sackler family has with the museums in terms of how long the, the names will be associated with them do we no i mean i i assume that um on some suitable occasion the name will be uh, sort of painted out of uh, one of the galleries the national gallery just when they're doing a repainting job um, which needs doing periodically um i suppose the interesting question is what the sackler trusts are going to do now and um, are they ever going to resume um, offering money to the arts or will they effectively close down? Of course, if they do, then the arts will lose many tens of millions of pounds, but um, that's highly likely. But that's the decision for the Sacklers and will also depend on uh, wider issues to do with um, you know, law cases and um, other events uh, in America. To what extent are museums increasingly dependent on private money? Well, they're certainly more dependent on non-governmental money um, because the government grant in aid for museums has essentially been stable for the last, roughly the last decade. And when you take inflation into account, um, it's actually um, been going down in a reduction. 
So um, in addition to government funding, which might cover, say, a third of a typical or a third of a typical national museum's budget, there are other sources of income, a self-generated money from donations and sponsorship, which is what we're talking about. And also from uh, another category of money would be money they raise from commercial activities. That's from cafes and shops, which is increasingly important. Um, there's great competition now, and there has been for many years, for sponsorship money or donations for major building projects or exhibitions or, or whatever. So that's not going to get easier. Um, I suspect museums are going to hope to retain the same sort of level of sponsorship and uh, private donations that they've had from in the past, but are not expecting to increase it. And the major push will be to try and increase um, commercial revenue from shops and cafes. I think they're very dependent, actually, and I think they're more dependent than a lot of people realise, particularly the big London institutions, because they've all expanded. So uh, they've all expanded. They have, okay, visitor figures have go up and down, but certainly over the last 10, 15 years, visitor numbers have greatly increased. They're doing more activities. They're doing more socially focused activities. If you look at the National Portrait Gallery, so total income, I think last year, 22 million, um, or at least the last set of figures, 22 million. Granting aid was 7 million and money from donations, not sponsorship, donations, 6.5 million. So almost as much as their granting aid. And then they earned a million from sponsorship. Donations from private individuals really are more significant in this mix than corporate sponsorship. If you look at the Tate Income, 117 million. Granting aid, 36 million. That's the money from the government. Donations, 34 million. Again, almost as much as the government is putting in. Sponsorship, only 4.7 million. And then they had other money for capital projects. It's particularly marked in the big London institutions. The Arts Council did a survey in 2016. I think the figures actually relate to, say, 2013, 2014, something like that. They said 480 million for the arts in private investment. 96 million of that was from sponsorship, 245 million from individuals and 139 million from trusts. I'm not quite sure where the Sackler money would show in that. It would probably be the trust money. Basically, they said 20% of total arts funding. But in London, nearly all of that goes to London. And it's the figures are much more sort of skewed in London. And that's when you start to see that museums like the Whitechapel, Serpentine, Tate, National Portrait Gallery and so on are really dependent on donations and sponsorship. And this is a good moment to start talking about what's going on in the US because there uh, the the role of individuals is even, even more prominent, isn't it, Jane? Yes, although we should say museums in America often say that they don't receive any government funding. I should add many museums in America do receive government funding, but it tends to be the very big ones in New York, like MoMA and the Met and so forth, that are very, uh, the Whitney, that raise nearly all their money themselves. But they are helped by some very big tax breaks. So they are indirectly subsidised by the government, which isn't something that they tend to uh, to, to point out too often. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they are really very dependent on their donors. And in most cases, it's not corporates, it's individuals. And, and obviously, the big story in the US uh, over the summer was that Warren Candace, after enormous pressure for very many months, finally resigned as, as um, vice president of the Board of Trustees of the Whitney Museum. And um, 
what do you think this tells us, Jane? Is this just a one-off example, or do you think there will be more of this coming out? Well, this is the big debate, isn't it? I mean, we saw, and I think this actually goes back to the, the situation with museums in the UK as well, about the issue about whether they should be on the front foot, the back foot, or somewhere, you know, in the middle, <laughs> yogically in the middle. Um We've seen periods of activism before, probably the 70s and 80s is when people would remember it. And then it rather dissipated and faded away. And I think one of the questions that museums are debating, I imagine they're debating, I would hope they're discussing, is whether or not this is a sort of very activist blip that we're going through, probably very much motivated by the impact of the 2008 crash, um, the fact that people are feeling there are great inequalities in society. Uh, Younger people particularly not only have the climate issue, but are considerably poorer young millennials in countries, Western Europe and America. Um, So is this a kind of, you know, temporary situation or is something much more seismic going on in society? And that's the, the, the big, the, the, the big question. The Whitney's case is very interesting because it's mostly been focused, particularly in the press here, on Warren Candace. And Candace basically owns a company called Safariland. It makes, uh, I think, I'm not sure quite the right term they call it. I think it's, they call it defence products. It's, it's, not, it's, not an, it's not an arms company. It makes things like tear gas and um, bulletproof vests and so forth. And the the... the, the issue that really galvanised a lot of artists and protesters was when it emerged that the tear gas had been used on the Mexican border. And of course, many artists have been making work around the subject of the Mexican border and the way Trump and other American governments have have dealt with that. I think the protest went on for many months. It became several different groups were involved. But what I think is very interesting is that one of the collectives who are called DIRT, they call it the de-institutional research team. Uh, one of the pr- sort of protesting groups listed a whole set of issues that it had problems with and which it was basically had issues with the, the Whitney board. Um, and I'm just going to read this if that's OK. This is a quote from a leaflet that they made, which was a mock-up of the Whitney's own museum plan. Artists do the work of addressing issues around economic disparity, race, gender and sexuality and advocating for change. Meanwhile, Whitney trustees continue to function in and profit from and perpetuate systems of oppression and inequality. Once Candace stepped down, several of the protesters have made it clear that they are looking across the boards for all sorts of things. Um, and I think this is where museums are starting to enter a sphere where they really aren't sure what to do. I think the more that socio-political material is at the heart of artists' work, the more difficult it becomes for uh, museums to police the ethics of the people connected to the museum. Because artists, quite right, I, rightly, I think, don't want their work to be compromised by the place where they're showing their work being associated with people who operate on the in the very area that they're criticising. It becomes an enormously thorny issue. Yeah, and meanwhile, to some extent, it shows how successful museums have been because I think, again, 40, 50 years ago, I'm not sure that museums would be the focus of these kind of discussions, but they have generally become much more public places. They engage much more with these kind of debates. Um, and as a result, they are quite a good place to um, 
if you if you want to protest and have these discussions, museums have turned out to be quite a good place to do it. I think it's quite interesting the way artists are sort of taking over and making their points, and it raises complicated issues. I mean, I suppose from the artist's point of view, there can be they can have two approaches. One is that they, as you say, they don't want their work to be shown in a particular context. But they must also be aware that they're in quite a powerful position, particularly if they're well-known artists like Nan Goldin or or whoever, and that um, they quite naturally see an opportunity to push um, for things that they think are ethically correct. And it must be quite difficult if you're a director of a gallery uh, or a museum, uh, you know, to what extent uh, do you allow artists to determine the policy of a gallery, mm. um, either with regard to political issues uh, or economic issues, which we're discussing, or indeed the way the artist's work is presented. And I suppose the answer has to be it's some, something of a of a compromise, an, in, an intelligent compromise. But I think it's quite a challenge uh, for how to handle it. And as you say, this particularly affects galleries or museums which show contemporary art, like Tate in particular, or the National Portrait Gallery, yeah, uh, I mean, or MoMA in New York. <laughs> indeed, yes. I, mean, I, I, it's, I think it's very interesting. I, mean, I don't envy Nicholas Cullinan because he's, 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 he's putting forward this really... Uh, um, top class I think contemporary program with loads of really interesting shows and so he is placing artists contemporary artists at the mm. core of the new identity of his museum and then you get a letter from Gary Hume saying you know we, I need I would I would like you to address the climate crisis and then on the other hand he's he needs to keep the funds coming in for exhibitions so it's a very difficult position for a museum director to be in when they want to modernize the program to place artists at the heart of it and simultaneously keep funding that program I mean I suppose the equivalent will be um, if we saw for example more science museums getting pressures from scientists but few scientists have the kind of public profile of some of these artists. I mean, they do they do exist, obviously. But I think, you know, I mean, I think if Brian Cox suddenly uh, took major issue with something that a science museum was doing, we would all very quickly know about it. I think he has one or two million, you know, followers just on Twitter. Um, but I think... Th- Artists have a a particularly high public profile. And I also think, and we can say this because we're all in the media, I mean, being honest, I think when an artist starts protesting and they want to talk to us and run a story, um, it's a pretty attractive story for us. So that combination very quickly um, can very quickly escalate. I mean, artists, again, were at the heart of the whole Whitney story, weren't they? Because it was it was artist pressure and actually writers and and other um, uh, creative people's pressure, as well as the staff themselves of the Whitney that that really galvanised to 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 give this campaign momentum. One of the things that emerged from our reporting on this story in the most recent print edition of the art newspaper is it was very clear that there is no standard in terms of how museums are going about uh, uh, thinking about this issue. Um, do you think museums can do more? Should they do, be doing more? And if so, what should they be doing? <laughs> well, I certainly think they should be talking to each other and trying to have these discussions 
more openly, at least amongst themselves. I mean, I can understand why they don't necessarily want to talk openly to the press. They are worried, I suspect, about, you know, increasing the amount of sort of discussion around the subject. My own view is it's not going to go away. And in fact, it would be better to discuss and engage and talk more openly. But then, you know, I'm a journalist, so I would say that. Um, But I think that certainly if I were running a museum, and I'm rather glad I'm not, um, if I were running a museum, I think I would definitely be wanting to talk much more to my colleagues about this. I mean, one of the big questions that this, I think, raises, again, if we're talking at the macro level, really is a wider discussion about how museums are funded once again. And those of us that are old enough, and I think all of us sitting around this table are, to remember how well the museums came together to fundraise for Renaissance in the regions, which I guess would be about 15, 20 years ago. Um, they put a concerted campaign. Now, they were put, it was a, a Blairite Labour government. They were pushing on an open door, which is not the situation now. Um, but the way they managed to lobby together to increase funding, public funding for museums and galleries and to get money for free admission and so forth, I think was fairly exemplary in the UK. I'm, I've not lived in America, so I'm not quite as aware of a similar sort of campaign in America, although they maybe have existed. But I certainly think if if we want this situation to be different then we need to be less dependent on individual donors, sponsors and so forth. The problem is with two populist parties, Labour Party and Conservative Party, neither of them have shown a great deal of interest in increasing funding for the arts. And that's where I think museums are in this bind. Um, Martin, you mentioned earlier on that there's a, there was an ethics committee that that was involved in that Sackler decision at the National Portrait Gallery. Are you getting a sense that in other museums, similar bodies are playing a, uh, an increasingly important role? I think it's an interesting question about how decisions are made in museums. And we're talking about museums as if they're sort of um, one sort of block. Uh, But you must remember they all have quite large development departments who are responsible for raising millions of pounds and they measure their success by precisely how many millions they raise in a particular year. So they're pushing as widely as possible to to use outside donors and sponsors. Um, The trustees of the museum are responsible for overall running of the museum, including the financial side and the director too. And um, I should imagine that there are often conflicts or differences, I should say, between the different bits of the museum. So so, um, one must understand that. And um, I think the formation of ethics committees, which is a relatively new development, I think Tate led the way some years ago, is quite a sensible approach. And these committees are normally uh, set up by the trustees, so that um, they're sort of slightly, um, they're not too closely involved with the development department, and they can look more objectively at the issues. And then the trustees, and in conjunction with the director, can make the decisions. So I think we're going to see much more of of formal um, ethics committees set up um, for all of the national museums, I suspect, in the next few years. Of course, we're we're also very much talking about museums as having responsibility in this area. But 
it also requires private companies, new kinds of green businesses, new uh, modern thinking businesses to step forward and support the arts, doesn't it? And I don't know, at the moment, I don't know if there is an organisation which is responsible for bringing those people into this funding environment. It's interesting, isn't there? Because a lot has been written more from the point of view of the art market about whether the tech billionaires will, you know, get involved in art, the art market. And of course, that often means becoming also a, uh, you know, trustees or donors to museums. And right now, there hasn't been that much evidence of that. It has actually been, I'm going to put quote marks around it, it has tended to be more traditional industries like banking um, and the oil companies and so forth that have tended to sponsor the arts, presumably because they've been rich industries for a long time and it's it's built up over time. I mean, I think the point you were making about trustees is very interesting, Martin. Um, and, and there are a couple of others, I should add, that do have ethics committees. But again, we're not quite sure what the ethics committees do. I mean, for a long time, I think the one at the Tate was possibly more focused on how to to sort of stop overly uh, the over the over influence of the art market in the Tate, and they were worried about the Tate's ability to move markets and so forth. And this may not have been their number one priority issue. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was. But trustees are interesting as well, aren't they? Because they do tend to be the great and the good. They tend to be people who've been very successful in areas that museums would like. Um, help in whether that's legal or financial as well as scholarly trustees but generally you get there towards the end of your career and it can be difficult for those people to know when the kind of climate has shifted I think um, just as I would probably include myself in that and obviously I'm not I'm not a trustee or the age of most of the trustees but I think that that's a challenge for them and there's often been discussions around the degree to which boards might need to diversify What's interesting, though, you mentioned Ada Sui, if I hope I pronounced that correctly, the, the, the trustee at the BM. I mean, she clearly was out of step on a number of issues with her trustees. She, she said climate change, but she actually talks about vicious and widening inequality, residual heritage of colonialism, questions to democracy, citizenship and human rights. And it was well known that as well as BP, she was upset about some of the BM's employment practices and she was upset about its attitude to restitution. Now, in that way, and I would add that she was not a young woman, but she certainly represents a strand of thinking that we are seeing amongst a younger generation. So, yeah, it's a thorny issue. It will no doubt occupy very many column inches in the art newspaper in months to come. Keep following the artnewspaper.com. But for now, Jane and Martin, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure you follow all the latest developments in this story online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you'll find at the App Store. We'll be back at the Chicago Architecture Biennial after this. The 19th century Turkish painter Osman Hamdi Bey was a remarkable man who combined his artistic life with a distinguished career as a public administrator in the Ottoman bureaucracy. He embraced painting while a law student in Paris, studying under the French Orientalists Jean-Léon Jérôme and Gustave Boulanger, and he exhibited in the 1867 Paris Exposition Universelle. His work, Young Woman Reading, which is offered at Bonham's 19th Century Art Sale in September, undoubtedly reflects the technical influence of his French teachers. 
However, as Bonham's head of 19th century art, Charles O'Brien, explains, Hamdi Bey always painted from the heart, the wonderfully serene and enigmatic young woman reading, which has been in the same family for the past 45 years, has a dazzling depiction of ceramics, textiles, buildings and gardens. It's suffused with love of his homeland. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the third Chicago Architecture Biennial opens this week, and its title, and other such stories, signals its commitment to addressing the histories of displacement, deprivation and segregation that inform the city's urban design as surely as its landmark buildings do. It joins a number of biennials reckoning with the colonialist dimensions of their host cities and the impact on contemporary urban realities. The art newspaper's Margaret Carrigan went to the biennial this week and first met with Yosomi Umolu, the artistic director of this biennial. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about why it feels really urgent to bring some of these other stories, as you said, to light into this year's biennial. Yeah, certainly. One of the main things myself and my co-curators, Sapaki Angiam and Paolo Tavares, wanted to do with this biennial was to really um, move beyond Chicago just being a backdrop for um, the presentation of contemporary architecture and urbanism and actually situate Chicago as a lens through which we can start to understand um, questions in our urban environment. I think Chicago is uh, in some ways a very quintessential American city and its urban plan and kind of architectural heritage um, give us clues as to the evolution of this country. And as we started to look back um, to how Chicago came to be, um, we had to contend with the fact that prior to the arrival of European settlers in the Americas, um, this region was inhabited by um, indigenous um, communities. And so kind of charting that history, it's really important to recognize that Chicago as a city and its architecture cannot exist without the land on which it sits. And if we want to recognize the land on which it sits, it's important then that we contend with more difficult um, narratives as to how um, indigenous communities and histories um, were subsumed um, in place of this great metropolis that we see today. And I think something that's remarkable also is that Chicago is home to the United States' uh, third largest um, Native American and indigenous community. Um, and these, this community still lives in the city. They work here. They still practice their cultural heritage. Um, yet uh, this question of recognition is one um, that I think the city and its architecture struggle with. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the collaborators that you brought on? How many are in this year's edition? And, and what kind of projects speak to this issue of indigeneity and kind of reclaiming the, the land in Chicago? Yeah, we are working with around 80 contributors altogether. And we've been very inclusive in thinking about how we designate contributor status um, in the biennial. Those 80 people or practices um, represent uh, 
people who will be exhibiting in the Chicago Cultural Center and on our off-site locations, but they also represent um, voices and groups that will in be included in our public programs, as well as folks that have contributed to our publication. But for those who will be visiting uh, the exhibitions at the Cultural Center and off-site venues, um, primarily, we have about 51 exhibiting contributors. And the question of, I guess, indigenous histories, I think, is connected to um, thinking about how we as a human society um, might find meaning in our connection to the natural world. And there are varying histories um, and connections to the question of land and belonging and sovereignty. And for us, um, looking to how the histories of indigenous rights to land and indigenous cultural heritage in relation to not only Chicago, but the broader Midwest region, it means that we're recognizing a sort of one of many different definitions or relationships to the land. Now, Margaret also met with Andrew Hersher and Anna Maria Leon, the co-founders of the research collective The Settler Colonial City Project. They work with Chicago's American Indian Center to reconcile Chicago's modernization with the forcible removal and dispossession of indigenous peoples that many historical counts have erased. Here, Andrew and Anna Maria tell us about the collective's work and their contribution to the biennial. Well, we focus on the production of knowledge around settler colonialism, uh, which is a distinctive type of colonialism that focuses on settler societies, which strive to um, eliminate indigenous people, and the, the, the settler sort of comes to stay, right? Sort of replace the, uh, uh, the society in the lands that it finds. Um, and at the Chicago Architecture Biennial, we are doing a series of actions, events, and publications to document the history of settler colonialism in Chicago specifically. One of the things that scholars of settler colonialism insist on very compellingly is that settler colonialism is a structure that has uh, a continuing historical duration. It's not an event that begins and ends. And yet, settler colonialism in the United States, like in many settler colonial societies, is understood to be a relic from the past, something that we have transcended. And this is particularly true, um, we think, in the context of architecture and urban studies, where thinking about um, uh, um, buildings and cities uh, in the context of contemporary settler colonialism is, uh, is still a, 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 a sort of very... Um, uh, uh, complicated thing for these disciplines to take on. So I think we, we, it, we're, we're very happy to have a, a, a kind of um, space in the Chicago architecture biennial to introduce a way of thinking about settler colonialism with respect to um, um, this building that the biennial takes place in, the Chicago Cultural Center, and also the city of Chicago, both from its origins to its, its present-day reality. What we've done in the building for the biennial is a series of annotations. So you'll see a series of um, 
science, and, and, and here perhaps we should say that we are trained as architects, but we are historians and we are teachers. Uh, and, and I think these signs take a little bit from all those disciplines. Um, and the signs annotate the particular history of elements in the building, the mahogany that's present in the doors of the building, which is extracted from indigenous lands, the labor processes that uh, were in, involved in the extraction of the marble that's in the lobby, um, the the various um, representations of indigeneity or its absence or erasure that are present in the building. So these uh, annotations, you, you will find them sort of spread out throughout throughout the whole building. Mm -hmm. The Chicago Cultural Center is a sumptuous building built at the end of the 19th century. It was built as a, both as a public library and as a memorial hall for the Grand Army of the Republic, which was an organization of Civil War veterans. Um, it, was a, it was a monument by the city for the city, and it's renowned as 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 a historical monument, and also as what, what what some people call as a people's palace, a building that is open to all of Chicago's residents. And we 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 didn't we didn't want to negate that history, but we want to complicate it by showing that. Um, the, the, the beautiful materials that this building is built from, the labor practices that went into building this building are all dependent on colonialism, both in the United States and also globally. And I think um, um, by doing that, um, the, 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 there's, visitors to the building get a much fuller picture, uh, a, a much fuller understanding of the building, an understanding that also connects the building to um, processes of settler colonialism that 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 um, many people think uh, ended in the 18th century, and we have organized these actions, uh, events, and publications in collaboration with the American Indian Center of Chicago, uh, which is a vital part of this um, action of this um, process and of our work here, um, and it's important to highlight and underline that, because that they, they are living proof of, of the presence and the, also of the ongoing processes of settler colonialism to date. So, in other words, another way to think about it is by when one talks about settler colonialism, one also talks about indigeneity. Um, we are collaborating with the American Indian Center because we did not want to speak for or on behalf of the contemporary indigenous communities in Chicago, but we, we couldn't, we couldn't um, um, kind of advance a critique of settler colonialism without engaging uh, those indigenous voices, and so the American Indian Center is really sort of a vital part of the, the project. But we, we are settlers. We are all settlers. They're settlers of many different ethnicities uh, and backgrounds. Um, and we are the Settler Colonial City Project. Uh, and we, I think we share a politics of collaboration in which we feel strongly our responsibility to speak up as historians, as educators, and provide platforms um, for these knowledges to reach different publics. Now, Chicago is not the first city in Illinois to be known as an architectural landmark. About 300 miles south of Chicago, a thousand years ago, on the banks of the Mississippi River, the bustling native city of Cahokia once boasted the largest population of any settlement north of Mexico. 
and it too was celebrated for its intricately designed structures. These were made out of earth and they numbered near 200 and were plotted on a city grid aligned with the sun. And while these earthworks still stand up and down the Mississippi River and throughout the Ohio and Missouri Valleys, their people have been displaced and their histories largely erased. The Chicago-based artist Santiago X, however, is reviving indigenous building with two public installations along the Chicago and Des Plaines rivers as part of this year's architectural biennial. It marks the first time that effigy earthworks will be constructed by Native Americans in North America since the founding of the United States. Margaret spoke to Santiago X in Chicago. Santiago, can you tell us a little bit about what it meant for you to reclaim the tradition of mound building within the context of contemporary architecture? Yeah, for me, um, you know, I I, I grew up um, surrounded by my culture, surrounded by um, my people, my language, but I didn't see my culture reflected in the the landscape of America. Um, uh, And it wasn't until I, I, you know, went through... um, uh, my education as an architect, um, and and saw this this um, this this void um, in the the urban landscape of of the United States, um, and I didn't see uh, the the aesthetic of my people, my culture of, of the history of this land. I didn't see uh, that reflected in the buildings, you know, in, in the streets. Um, and as Indigenous peoples, historically, you know, we. Um, or even in present day, you know, like 70% of us live off of reservation. So we live in, you know, urban settings, um, suburban settings. Um, so I thought, you know, um, with that reality, you know, could we start to establish, um, you know, uh, indigenous uh, futurescape, uh, uh, you know, urbanscape more reflective of, of our resilience and our... our, our um, um, our present day, um, you know, um, participation in, in these cities and in this, this, the structure of this country, um, can we start to build architecture and, and reinvigorate, you know, the, 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 uh, the beauty of, of urban um, native civilizations of the past? Um, so, you know, given the opportunity to, I was asked to create a, a public artwork uh, in Chicago to activate the river and you know, mound civilizations um, up and down the Mississippi River use that river as a spine, you know, for, for our civilizations, for trade networks, for, um, you know, exchange, cultural exchange, spiritual, um, economical. So being so close to the Mississippi and then being in the state of Illinois with the largest mound civilization of Cahokia, um, and then also doing more research about the the underlying grid of Chicago itself and, and all the mounds that were destroyed to create, you know, this city, um, the mounds that still exist that are unmapped, um, but are, are still there. Um, given this opportunity to create earthworks and re- reinvigorate the original public art um, through the effigy mound um, of this region and of this of this uh, continent, um, I felt um, I felt a duty, you know, to to, to see it through, and and, uh, and it was a huge opportunity um, just for for indigenous people to to see our 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 um, our worlds, you know, our civilizations um, made tangible again. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Just for our listeners, can you kind of give me a sense of the scale of these and how how they'll be activated? Yeah, there's two uh, two earthwork sites, um, one in Horner Park and one in Schiller Park. Um, so inside the the city limits, along the the Chicago River and Irving Park, right where they intersect, uh, we have. Uh, 
a coil mound, which is um, essentially the effigy of a, a, a resting serpent. But you can walk up the spine of the serpent, and up on top you have a platform where you can contemplate, um, uh, you know, more sustainable urbanity, the connection of, of human and and water and land. Um, and you have a vista of the city as you look towards the city. You see the Chicago River um, right in front of you, um, and then down Irving Park. Um, Outside the city limits, just outside, um, in Schiller Woods, we have um, a mound site that's opening on October 14th. Um, it's a ser- serpent effigy um, of a serpent that comes in and out of the earth um, a few times. Um, so you're surrounded by this, uh, these are about 20 feet long, um, 4 foot tall, um, but you know, taking over the whole site around you. Um, the Horner Park site, the, the mound is about 100 feet uh, by 20 feet tall, okay. 15 to 20 feet tall. We're, it's all dependent on, on materiality. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. And there's a, another indoor component to your work for the biennial as yeah. well, which is installed here at the Chicago Cultural Center. Um, <coughs> tell me a little bit about the form that, that work yeah. took and, and how does it correspond with the earthworks? Yeah. So, you know... Um, mounds uh, have different typologies, uh, just like city buildings, you know, just like buildings in general. Um, different programmatic elements, different intentions, um, different forms, shapes, uh, footprints. Um, so with, with the setting, uh, you know, of the Chicago Cultural Center being uh, central to the city, and then also, you know, upon the juxtaposition of, of like, our biggest... Um, uh, mound work in Cahokia, Illinois, um, Monk's Mound, um, and then the actual building of the Chicago Cultural Center. I put them side by side in Google Maps and realized they're the exact same footprint, uh, the exact same height, the exact same orientation, north-south. Um, so if you're standing you know, at the, on the steps of Washington Street and looking south, you're facing the Mississippi and the flow, and you're, you're, you're aligned with, with Monk's Mound and Cahokia. It's, it's like pretty incredible, the, the similarities there. So I saw that and I was like, okay, well, we have to make a platform mound, um, you know, inside the cultural center oriented along the same axis um, and put, uh, you know, an iteration of the structures that we, the temporary structures that we put on top of these mounds. Um, uh, every region, you know, the, those, those structures, they take different forms. Um, I, I drew inspiration from... Um, you know the regional wigwam builders, but also my ancestral people. We put uh, huts on top of mounds um, made out of palmetto leaves, and um, you know every region has a different materiality, but the silhouettes are essentially the exact same. Um, so playing off of that silhouette, I actually sourced um, invasive non-native grasses from the city streets of Chicago. So I harvested those um, for 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 months and accumulated this this stack of thatching um, uh, created from this invasive plant. So that's what is actually uh, the surface of this hut on top of a platform mound. And then the notion of, uh, you know, we, I wanted to set it on fire for many different artistic uh, reasons, but historically we did this um, as a chief, uh, an elder, um, a matriarch would, would die um, we burned the hut and all the belongings along with this person, and then we built the mound that that hut sat on top of. We built it higher. Um, so there's lots of there's lots of uh, underlying uh, reasons for that, and uh, the notions of renewal and loss, indigenous futurism, 
indigenous reconstruction. Um, it's kind of a, a, a seed of a manifesto uh, propelling, um, you know, an indigenous futurity and ultimately uh, the revitalization of indigenous cities again. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah. The Chicago Architecture Biennial continues until the 5th of January 2020. And you can read more on the Biennial at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And do subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them, and if you enjoy it, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and we're on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mihalska, Amy Dawson, and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Join us next week for an education special. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.